I'm Kayla Ogden, and this is Better for the Boy. This podcast is a documentation of my life and struggle to be the best human I can be for the boy. I just started trying to be a better person in earnest a few months ago. Why now and not before? Well, because I'm sort of an atheist. And before, I guess I just thought, what's the point in being good? What's the point of being the very best version of myself that I can be? If I'm just barely a speck in the universe that exists for hardly a blip of time in the history and future of reality, why work super hard or deprive myself of comfort? Why not just coast? I'm totally inconsequential either way. It's not like I have anything I'm supposed to be doing for a god and I don't have anything to prove to the other little specks around me. I could see why I should be pretty good or average. I decided how hard I'd have to work to meet my basic needs and how much I'd have to sacrifice to be entertained, stimulated, and satiated. But beyond that, why strive each day to create a future for myself, to make my dreams come true? Even if I were famous and I made a huge impact on the earth, if I were the equivalent to Aristotle or Siddhartha Gautama, it's like, is the queen ant really more consequential in this universe than all the little ants in her colony? You know when you're in British Columbia and you're camping in the wilderness, it's twilight and you already have the fire started because it's always earlier in the evening than you think it is when you're camping. You take the joint that's being passed around in between two fingers and allow yourself a couple of quick tokes and you gaze into the distance and you see the dark bluish evergreen cloak that is wrapped around each mountain. It's a fabric of pine trees The rows of trees toward the base of the mountain are the larger ones in your vision. They appear to be the height of the pinky nail on your hand, perhaps. As your eyes trail up to the peak of the mountain, you can barely distinguish one tree from the next. They are so tiny from where you sit. You realize that in reality, each of these western hemlock trees probably grows to 180 feet. You're not even six feet tall. Those trees are big. And you're so small. And those trees are fucking old. Like some of them might be a thousand years old. You probably won't even live a tenth of that long. Even if you don't get high, you probably recognize these thoughts from a time when you were gazing at old starlight in an inky night sky, or a set of powerful ocean waves, or a long line of ants marching into a tiny pyramid of sand on the edge of your driveway. How small is small? Side note on this atheist thing. I don't want to call myself an atheist. Hell, I don't want to be an atheist at all. I'd like to call myself agnostic. Agnostic is much nicer. It would mean that I believe that nothing can truly be known beyond the material world. I'd say, I don't believe in God or gods, but I don't believe that there's no God either. I like this, but to be real, I strongly suspect that there is no God and I would be super surprised if there were. Whereas calling myself an atheist is a huge bummer. The word atheist to me conjures up scary, dark feelings. It makes me think of a condescending dweeb asshole who thinks that they're better than everyone else. The thing is, though, strange bedfellows are no reason to deny truth if you find it. You find that bed of truth and you gotta, you gotta get in it. And you make your bed. 
and you sleep in it with weird atheists. So with this mentality that I have that I've been describing, so far as a person, I've become just okay. I'm not that bad, but it depends on your standards. I'm not like Donald Trump or Jeffrey Epstein or something. Still, you probably want to know who you're dealing with here. Okay, so if I'm being really critical of and unkind to myself, I might say that I'm lazy, indulgent, impatient, unhealthy, sneaky, judgmental, and spoiled. I haven't completely fucked up my life with a hard drug habit or by committing crimes, but I'm no Melinda Gates either. My basic info is that I'm a 32-year-old, straight agnostic, introverted though not shy, married, white, cisgender female with a baby. I live in Silicon Valley in California. Right now, I'm what you might call a stay-at-home mom. The home that I supposedly stay at is a somewhat upscale two-bedroom apartment with my one-year-old boy, Sawyer. Parenting him is my main job right now. My husband goes to work at one of those big tech companies and makes enough money to support all three of us. I would definitely say that this is a picture of privilege. I'm in a bubble here, and the bubble is real. I'm one of those coastal elite people who never in a million years thought that America would vote in Donald Trump. So yeah, I need to figure out what to do with my privilege. Also, I don't want to raise a frat boy asshole. I'm motivated to do these things and more despite my atheism, and I'll explain how. It wasn't always like this. I didn't always see the universe and its contents as a random array of atoms displacing and refiguring in an endless, beautiful, but ultimately capricious dance. I wasn't always so transgressive. In my life, my sense of my own divine meaning has been like a pendulum, which swung from believing in my brilliant, permanent, and overwhelming significance to the world, all the way over to the other side in which I realized I was a meaningless, clawing, instinctual animal among other meaningless animals on a tiny blue godless dot in space. When I was a child, I knew easily that I was truly gifted and super special. I thought I had a special knowledge of my specialness, and I knew I was special because I was special. I didn't think every child felt this way, because if every child is special, how special could I be? Sadly, of course, it turns out that I was partially right. Not every child believes that they are special, but it's not because some are and some aren't. My confidence must have been an attitude embedded by my mother, who always told me how great I was, for better or worse, and still does, mind you. A mother and father or whichever guardian is granted to a child are the people who explain the world. They are our first impressions of our environment and of ourselves. Whether in the largest sense of the word my childhood self deserved praise and kisses, that is what I received, and so I believed I was the bomb. There's some family lore around me even, like the story when I was given a Rubik's Cube for Christmas when I was seven. I remember the Rubik's Cube. My mother tells this story about the Christmas afternoon at my grandma's house. Presents from grandma had already been open, nothing too exciting. I probably received pajamas, socks, perhaps a little notebook with a photo of a flower basket on the front, maybe a porcelain squirrel trinket. I can remember the tan shag carpet, the wood paneled wall with the decorative ceramic seagulls on it. That year, someone bought me a Rubik's cube. During the hustle and bustle this Christmas afternoon, when the rest of the family was drinking tea and eating shortbread cookies at the kitchen table or helping grandma in the kitchen, someone came back in the family room to discover that I had made quick work of the Rubik's puzzle. I had solved it. I don't know if that's true or not, but those are the kind of stories that my mother would tell. 
I should be on TV, I thought. This wasn't because I believed I was especially pretty, neither beautiful nor ugly. I always kind of knew my place in that regard. It reminds me of um, a bit that Chelsea Peretti did in her Netflix special, One of the Greats. She's talking about how being a beautiful girl was never like really part of her identity. She says that when the other little girls for Halloween, they were princesses or rainbows or fairies, that she she dressed up like an old man. And then she says, she has this part where she's talking about um, how to make a really beautiful woman just crazy, just like implode, is you say to them, everybody tells me that I look just like you. <laughs> it's so funny. And it's true. Like, I remember this one time, um, my husband and I went out with our friends for a karaoke night this other couple it was Anne and John and they were kind of newlyweds and they invited us out to do this thing so we go out there and Anne the the woman she was more friends with my husband than than me and she is this picture perfect little pixie she's a linguist you know her vocabulary I've never heard somebody talk quite like her And she's really, really beautiful, too. And she's tiny. She's one of those really petite women. And and we get there. We get to the restaurant. And Anne gets up on stage. And she starts singing this song, this oldie, like a song from the 50s or maybe. Um, But it's not one that we've all heard before. You know, she's not singing these boots are made for walking or sign seal delivered or something like that. It's like something, it's like a deep tracks kind of song, of course, because she's so chic. Of course, that's what she would sing. And I was just looking at her like, okay, so you've got a PhD, you know, you're so beautiful. You're so smart and also funny and nice. And now you're just singing like a bird, of course. Um, and then I went outside for a cigarette and there were these two people out there, these older people, the place where we were was kind of a dive and these people looked like regulars. They saw me and they said, Hey, we liked your song. We good song. You're a good singer, girly. And I was like, me, what song? And then they sort of described that they had seen me up on stage, but it was actually, they were talking about Anne. Um, they definitely had their beer goggles on. And then when I went inside, I mentioned to Anne that those people had thought that it was me. And I could see her brain melting through her eyes. Like it was crazy. She was like, she, it was like, she was like a robot that was malfunctioning. She's like, you, they, you, you, they thought you, but I'm, and you're, and she's just like freaking out. She actually got really stuck on it. She's like asking her husbands, do we, do we look alike? Does she look like me? Do, do I look like her? And she's like, I'm sorry to me. She's like, it's just that, you know, your features are kind of, oh, what's the word that she said? Um, it was aquiline, which I think means, I don't think that that's, I don't know what that word means. Um, you know, she's always, she's a linguist, so she's always using words that I don't really mean but I think it means like like a bird um let me just check here aquiline okay so I'm I'm looking for 
Okay, yeah. Oh, okay. So these are the synonyms for aquiline. What Anne said that I look like. One, crooked, hooked, hawk-like, bird-like, roomy, protuberant, dwarfish. Oh my gosh, that's so rude. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm just looking at my face. I'm like, do I look like dwarfish or like crooked? I mean, I don't maybe I don't know no okay I'm making it sound like I'm really ugly I'm not really ugly I'm just normal and regular and that's fine (laughs) anyways uh that was a tangent but basically what I'm saying is that like yeah I thought it was super special and I thought that you know I wrote poems and I thought that they should be in books um I think it was more that I thought that I had this like really sparkling kind of personality Not that I thought that I was, you know, super beautiful, but I didn't think that that was really as important. What was really important was to be capital O original. Everything had to be unique. I wore a stretchy rainbow belt to school and extra wide leg Jinko jeans, and I let the other children around like pets. I only wanted to shop at thrift stores because the stores at the mall had like 10 of the same shirt hanging on a rack. How lame. Did they really expect me to wear the same shirt as nine other people? It confused me that no one else found this disturbing. Some of the other kids copied me. And I don't know, but I don't think I ever would like call anyone out on it. But in my mind, it was a really lowly thing to do. Didn't the other children know that dressing like me and talking like me could not possibly make them cool like me? It's only cool if it's original, I thought. You can't copy someone else's magic. You have to find your own and be brave enough to use it. Even today, I refuse to buy the Birkenstock sandals each other woman I know owns. They look fucking comfortable though, and I'm so down for a comfortable, unsexy thing like that being popular among women. I just can't do it because everyone else already is. I think leggings are kind of similar in that they are a trend that are comfortable as fuck. I believe their sexiness is a happy byproduct and not the reason they became ubiquitous among women, despite some pushback from assholes. They come in so many different flavors. You can wear them to bed or to work out or even on a date. In the middle of thinking about this, I started looking to see if there's still any controversy around leggings. And it turns out that there is. There totally is. People are mad because they can see your butt. I feel like you can see my butt in any jeans or shorts. It's just a butt. I recently read an art. I just read like an article um, on some like blog from some pastor and he's giving women advice about not wearing them and he's like yeah you know you're not responsible for men's sexual sinful thoughts but we need help men need help so if you can just dress modestly actually the analogy that he makes in his article is if you have a if you buy a precious iphone what's the first thing you do you put it in a case and i guess that's like to me i'm like that doesn't that analogy doesn't really work. So what, you want me to wear a helmet? Like on my butt? Or what's going on? So dumb. Fuck that guy. So moving forward in time a little bit to when I was a tween and I was, you know, just on the cusp of becoming a teenager and I found God, or at least I thought I did. And I found God 
just kind of as a reaction to my actual father packing all his shit into his sky blue drop top midlife crisis jeep and um, and just speeding away from our house and he went and moved across town Um, it was just it was so perfectly predictable but what wasn't predictable and what was kind of weird was the way that my mom and dad told my sister Megan and I that they were splitting up so (laughs) on April 1st April Fool's Day in 1998 when I was about to turn 12 years old They sat us down on the plaid couch in the living room of this big-ass house we had moved into a few years prior when my father's computer business was doing really well. And they had told my sister and I that my mother was pregnant and we were going to have a baby brother. We already knew that it was April 1st, so we immediately called bullshit on this ridiculous story. We also knew that my mom had had her tubes tied... Uh, See me using quotations around tubes tied because I honestly still don't really know what that means, but I'm sure that is not the appropriate medical language. Um, Yeah, when they told us about the baby, we were just like, oh, ha ha, whatever, guys, we know it's April Fool's, nice try. And now the next year, April 1st, 1999, they sit us down on the same couch in the same manner and they tell us that they love us very much, but they are separating And we're like, okay, we know what you're doing. April Fool's, ha ha. And they just were kind of silent and awkward. And I remember thinking in my head, I was trying to reason. And I realized that it was evening at this time. There's a rule with April Fool's hijinks. You must commit your prank before noon. And it was definitely after noon. I looked up at my father and he had tears rolling down his face. So it was true. My dad leaving made me feel pretty unspecial because it was like, okay, sure. You love my sister Megan and me, and we aren't the reason you're leaving, but aren't we enough to make you stay? Aren't we supposed to be everything to you? I mean, look at us. We are so special and our potential is as bright as the sun. Do you really want to miss out on our rise to excellence and notoriety? Are you just a big dummy or what? Or maybe... Maybe we're not excellent and maybe we're not bright like the sun. Maybe we're just a couple of kids you had a little bit too young. So then, just as my self-esteem was in question, in swooped Jesus Christ, just in the nick of time. Actually, in swooped my neighbor and best friend forever who invited me to church with her and her family. I loved that the church seemed to have all the answers to all of life's mysteries question, why am I here? Answer, to glorify God. Question, am I a piece of shit? Answer, kind of, but so is everyone else. And Jesus loves us all and forgives us all. Oh, that's so sweet. Thanks, Jesus. Everyone at the church made me feel so good. I don't mean to be ungracious, but I think they kind of saw me as fresh meat. Sometimes Christians feel compelled to spread the word and make sure lots of other people get saved because they think that you're literally going to hell and that would really suck for you. But honestly, they also seem motivated by a lot of their own ego stuff. But then there were questions that I didn't want to think about too hard. The answers seemed unrealistic, like, question, how old is the planet? Answer, it's about 8,000 years old according to the Bible, and the Bible is the word of God question. Well, what about dinosaurs? 
Answer. Well, they were there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, I guess. Question. Why do children all over the world suffer? Answer. Because Adam and Eve sinned and separated themselves from God. So you have to pray to God to help. He can't just intervene if we don't ask because then there would be no free will. Oh, and the devil. Yes, Satan, Lucifer, Diablo, Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, whatever you want to call him. Roams the earth. Fucking shit up. I think my entire church stint lasted about four years through most of my adolescence between the ages of 13 and 17. During that time, I went all in. I was baptized in a hot tub that they had set up by the pulpit during a Sunday morning service. Don't worry, the jacuzzi jets weren't on. I transferred to a Christian school for a year or two, but then I went back to public school to create prayer groups and I guess shine the light of God on those kids or something. I'm so embarrassed when I think about this now. I went to Mozambique and I did the whole white savior thing. I preached in front of a few crowds. I did a lot of very public Christian things. I did all this, honestly, because I really thought that what the Bible said was true and that all these people I knew were going to hell. This scared the shit out of me. So I was very devout and I'm sure I was very annoying, especially to my sister and my mom. At 16, I read this book called Reaching for the Invisible God by Philip Yancey. There was a passage that talked about doubt. I remember the point he was making quite vividly. He said that Christians are afraid of their doubts. He cites Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, which says, Take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. He reasons that if the shield is faith, the fiery arrows must be doubt. But he says to shield yourself with faith, you have to face the arrows. He said that a lot of Christians stuff their doubts in a symbolic closet. They keep stuffing doubts in there until one day when they open the door to the closet to put away just one more doubt, all the other doubts avalanche on top of them. And then they're just totally fucked. I'm paraphrasing here. He said, if you really have faith, you'll face your doubts head on. If you really believe in Jesus, you should be able to ask whatever question you have because you know you have faith that the answers will be in his favor. Cool. That makes sense, I thought. But then, as soon as I started really asking questions, my opaque, unshakable religious beliefs started to crack and thin out with large fissures and transparent places. Before I knew it, the whole structure had crumbled beneath my Chuck Taylors. I also lost my virginity to my super sweet first love, a boy I met at youth group. It was awesome, and I didn't feel bad about it at all, despite the importance of our, that our youth groups placed on saving it for marriage. That whole rhetoric was dumb. Also, I'd never heard anyone at church disparage gay people, but I had been too scared to ask. I was pretty sure I knew what they would say, and they would say something negative, and that was totally unacceptable. A great thing about Christianity, though, is that it gives you a purpose and it gives life itself meaning. Shitty, annoying, boring meaning, in my opinion, but meaning nonetheless. Each person is fearfully and wonderfully made according to Psalm 139 verse 14. That's so much more comforting to believe in than the tough conclusion I would later come to. The dreaded, uncomfortable, atheist thing. So when in your mind you can't come to any other answer than that there is probably no God, No purpose for your existence other than to push your species forward like any other insentient being. 
How do you motivate yourself to have morals and be good, to self-actualize, to live up to your potential, even just to express yourself, to care about yourself? For me, it started with the boy. No matter the truth of existence, I need to be better for my boy. But he can't be my only incentive. I'm far too contemplative for that. After all, if I'm just a tiny, meaningless speck, then he's even tinier and less meaningful than a tiny, meaningless speck. Because he only weighs 20 pounds and he can't even talk, you know what I mean? (laughs) The birth of my little son, though, it has prompted my choice to look at my life from a different angle and approach my time on this planet with a new attitude. No more coasting. Still, I can't delude myself into finding meaning where there is none. I have to work with what I've really got here. I have an intelligent, conscious, emotional brain. I'm on Team Humanity, six million years in the making. I get to enjoy maybe 60 more years on this gorgeous planet. All living animals are having a real experience in this moment with me. Maybe if I look at life more like a video game or a sport, that would help. Does it really make a difference in your life if you beat all the quests and acquire all the coins or whatever when you're playing a video game? Maybe if you're in the Fortnite World Cup or whatever, but I mean for a normal person playing a video game. While you're playing the game, you're totally engrossed and invested. Dopamine is being released in your brain, your blood pressure is increasing, your heart beats faster, your emotions swell, deflate, rise, and sink. It's real in those moments and you're in it and it's fun and challenging and it matters. Even if it's just kind of an illusion, maybe I can live my life like that. What are the rules? What character do I design to compete? Which decisions do I make to solve the puzzles? How can I win? I often think about this quote that I learned back in my Christian days. It's by C.S. Lewis, who he's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, but this is from his book, Mere Christianity. He says, each day we are becoming a creature of splendid glory or one of unthinkable horror. So this is very dramatic, but I kind of see it, you know, in the world. You know how some elderly people are so sweet and healthy and they're like revered? They're wise sages or eccentric entertainers. They have photo albums full of memories. They have accomplishments, relationships. They have a legacy. And then there's these old people who are like decrepit lechers and depressing bores. They're weighed down with grudges and they're sick from years of drinking the bitter poison of hate in hopes it would hurt other people. Okay, so clearly I don't have it all figured out, but my baby is growing up so fast and there's no time to waste. I'll have to think and act at the same time experience and contemplate. Sometimes you just have to make a decision and figure it out along the way. And I've made my decision. I'm going to be better, better for the boy. In upcoming episodes, I'll explore what it means to be better and tell you stories about my attempts. You'll hear about mindfulness meditation, fitness, volunteer work, some parenting stuff, human development, evolutionary psychology, overcoming addictions, I'll tell you about therapy and life coaching that I'm getting. I'm going to try to figure out what I should do about the environment and if I need to make my voice heard in a political way, like voting, protesting, etc. I guess I'm taking one of my first steps towards being better tomorrow night. I'm going to an orientation for an organization called CASA, 
court-appointed special advocates. If I end up volunteering for them, I'd be advocating for an abused or neglected child and making sure that that child doesn't get lost in the system or get trapped in a bad foster home. It all sounds like gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, and time-consuming, but I think it might be a way to share my privilege. We'll see. I'll let you know how it goes. Now to cap off this episode, I'll leave you with a definition. Let's expand our vocabulary so that we can express ourselves more accurately and look as smart as we think we are. This episode's word is humanism or secular humanism. It's a philosophy or life stance that embraces human reason, ethics, and philosophical naturalism while specifically rejecting religious dogma, supernaturalism, pseudoscience, and superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. I dig it. This has been Better for the Boy. Thanks for listening.